Morning, guys. Good to see you all. Uh, anybody mind this cooler weather? Is this okay for everybody? Much better, right? Praise God. We even got a little bit of rain, so good stuff. Um, we're not going to talk about baseball today. We're going to talk about other things. Um, hey, when I was uh, in youth ministry, which is about 111 years ago, when I was in youth ministry, um, one of the things I did, because you know the church is very big on paying youth pastors huge salaries, right? And so um, one of the things I did was I had a full-time job outside the church, and I worked for an electric company. And what we did was construction electricity. So we would go put power poles on job sites where they were going to be building, and they need to be able to plug in their saws and all that kind of stuff. And so we would put power poles, and sometimes we put these uh, what they call ground boxes. It's just a big metal box with a bunch of plugs on it, and it connects by these big, heavy cords that run one to the next to the next. And one of the things that our company promised was that if you had a problem with your electricity on your job site, we would be there within two hours to get it fixed for you. So uh, it was a Friday afternoon, and I was the uh, manager of a branch, and I had this foreman who was really the best electrician I've ever been around. He knew everything there was to know about electricity. He had years and years years of experience with electricity, understood how the whole thing worked. He could have done my job much easier than I could have, um, but he was this great electrician, and we get this call on a Friday afternoon, it's almost time to go home, saying, hey, a tractor hit one of those ground cords on our job and cut it right in half, and we need somebody to come and fix that cord. So I called him and said, hey, this is right by your house. Could you stop by this place on your way home? You can go and you can fix this cord for them and they'll be up and ready by Monday when it's time for them to go back to work. So he did that. And when he got there, he found that the cord was cut and all it needed to be was spliced back together. And he had done this 10,000 times. And he took up a look and counted the boxes and realized that the main breaker box was about 800 feet away. And he said to himself, it's been a long day. I don't want to walk 800 feet there and 800 feet back. I've worked with electricity my whole life. Let me just fix this while it's hot. When he woke up, he was across the street on the sidewalk on his back with his hands and feet in the air. And the first thing he noticed was that there were holes in each of his thumbs where his thumbnails used to be. Yeah, and that incredibly wonderful smell of burning human flesh. And that day, he gave me a sermon illustration. So I thanked him for that. Because here's the thing. You can have all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of experience, and all kinds of understanding, but still not have enough wisdom to go turn off the breaker. And guys... We're jumping into this sermon series on wisdom. We're calling it Wise Up. And the idea is that as we apply biblical wisdom to our lives, we should be able to watch God take our lives to new levels, places that we never thought we could have gone before, places in our personal life, places in our careers, places in our marriage, all of that, that we've never gone to before because we're now starting to apply the wisdom of God's word in our daily lives. So that's really what this is about. You're going to be getting a ton of big 
principles in this series, right? A lot of what we're going to be talking about is just sort of building blocks for the foundation of a life that is lived in wisdom. So that's kind of where we're going with this. And when I think about building that foundation, the thing that comes to my mind is Jesus's famous parable of the two builders, right? He, he told a story and he said there, there was this wise builder and a foolish builder. There was this one guy, he said, who wanted to build a house and he, he went to Newport Beach and it was untouched and beautiful. And he said, what a place to build a house. I'm gonna build my house right here so that I can walk right out onto the beach in the morning. I could surf every morning. I'm gonna do it. I'm, I might be changing the story a little, but the idea is he was gonna build his house and where he decided to build his house, the foundation was sand. There's another guy in Jesus' story who said, I too wanna build a house, but I want my house to last. And so he found a place with a rock uh, solid foundation and he built his house on the rock and Jesus said when the storms came it's always important to notice he didn't say if the storms come he said when the storms come the guy whose house was built on the sand how'd he do not so good right but the guy whose house was built on the rock did really well that's the idea here we're not necessarily going to be every week attacking a specific subject that is part and parcel to your week that week. What we're gonna be doing in this series is we're going to be laying this foundation upon which we can build the rest of our lives. It gives us wisdom. It gives us a sense of understanding of what God's doing. So we're gonna jump around different passages we're actually going to address different specific toppings. Uh, toppings? <laughs> I don't know if I'm thinking pizza or hot fudge sundae. But you, <laughs> we're going to address different topics. And, uh, but the goal is going to be to lay that foundation of biblical truth upon which we can build our lives. So... There may be some weeks in this series in which, you know, you nod and smile and go, yeah, I agree with that, I agree with that, but I don't have a specific application for that in my life this week, and that's okay. And there might be some weeks that it feels like God is speaking directly to you because this is the topic that is going on in your life right now, and this is the biblical wisdom that you need right now to apply so that your life will be different on Monday. And maybe if you don't have a direct application, you will still lay this foundation in your life so that when you do have an application, the wisdom will be there. You don't get to build wisdom on the fly, do you? You don't get to go, oh my goodness, I got this crisis in my family. Let me go acquire some wisdom. That's not how it works. You have to actually lay the foundation of biblical wisdom in your life so that when you need it, it's there. And by the way, it might not just be you who needs it. It might be someone who God brings into your life and you can be a counselor to that person, an encourager, a support to that person. And so where there's a direct and immediate application in your life that is obvious, make the necessary changes. Because as we said last week, none of this matters if you don't apply it. It's about applying truth, right? Otherwise, store up that biblical wisdom. 
Because the day is coming, just as Jesus said, the storm is coming. The day is coming when you're going to need to draw on that wisdom and you're going to go, Lord, what do I do in this situation? And it should not be your gut that tells you what to do. It should be the word of God inspired by the spirit of God active in your life. And that's why we're doing this work now to lay this foundation. All right. A whole lot of wisdom in scripture is found in the book of Proverbs, and that's where we're going to be today. This is not a study in the book of Proverbs every week. It's a study in wisdom. It just so happens that the book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom. So as you're turning to the book of Proverbs to prepare for this, if you have one of these old-fashioned leather and paper Bibles, the best way to get to Proverbs is just to open right to the middle. You'll probably find yourself in Psalms. If you find yourself in Psalms, just turn a few pages to the right and you'll be in Proverbs and then put a marker there because you're probably going to need to go back there multiple times during this series. But today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 7. So turn with me to Proverbs 7. And let me just begin by reading the first few verses of what uh, Solomon is writing here very specifically to his son and also to us. Chapter 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words, treasure my commandments within you, keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. This is how we need to treat biblical wisdom in our lives. Look at these words. He's keep this stuff. Treasure this stuff. In fact, tie it to your hands. Put it on your fingers. Um, Keep it with you wherever you go. Build an intimate relationship with wisdom so that you can walk in wisdom and apply it as the opportunity presents itself to do that. I think those were in my Bible I've highlighted. Keep, treasure, apple of your eye. It's not a great idea. You know the apple of your eye is your pupil, right? That, that most tender part of your eye, the thing that you're going to protect no matter what, you can't help it. You can't help it. If I walk up to you and do a three stooges doink, you're immediately going to go like that because nobody wants to get poked in the eye. We protect the apple of our eye. And he says, I want you to hold on to this like the apple of your eye. I want you to have an intimate relationship with wisdom. That's the first four verses of Proverbs chapter 7. And I just picture wise King Solomon sitting at his big desk with a quill in his hand writing this. And I think he gets maybe through those first four verses and I just picture him sort of stopping and leaning back in his chair and maybe letting out a big sigh before he writes verse five. That they may keep you from an adulteress from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And he sort of scoots back from his desk and he strokes his beard and he thinks a little bit about how great it would have been if he had followed this advice in his own life. And, and, and maybe he, he stops and actually ponders how important this is going to be for his son who will presumably um, take over the throne when he's gone. And he realizes that when he looks back, that there is a legacy in his family 
that is related to this. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Remember, King Solomon is the son of the famous King David. And we talked last week about David's situation with Bathsheba and how his lust took over and put him in a position where he was doing things he never would have dreamed he was going to do, and it almost toppled his entire life. Solomon is the child of David and Bathsheba. In fact, Solomon, the king, really never should have inherited the throne. He was not the firstborn son of David. He wasn't even the secondborn son of David. He wasn't even the thirdborn son of David. So for all of you who are looking at me right now, I know you guys are Bible scholars. So just uh, somebody tell me, what is the name of the firstborn son of David? We got an Absalom. What else we got? Because Absalom's wrong, by the way. What else we got? No, not that. So, so your Bible doesn't say 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Amnon, 2 Amnon. You know why? Because Amnon, the firstborn son of David, doesn't figure into the story for very long. Amnon, the son of David, the one who should be king, had this situation where... Um, he had eyes for his sister. Now, she was a half-sister, so I suppose maybe in his mind that made it okay. But even in that day and age, it wasn't okay, and he knew it wasn't okay, but he couldn't get her out of his mind, and every time he saw her, he wanted her. And so he was talking to his best friend about this, and his best friend said, why are you so down? What's wrong with you? And he's like, I can't get my mind off my sister. I just wish I could be with my sister. I want my sister. And he goes, well, you're the son of the king. You should be able to have whatever you want. So they hatched a plan. He said, here's what you do. Pretend to be sick. And when your father comes to check on you, tell him you're just feeling down, you're feeling sick, and you really need some nursing, and ask him to send your sister Tamar to nurse you, to take care of you. And when she comes... He has everyone else leave the room. He bolts the door behind her, so to speak, grabs her by the arm, and rapes his sister. That's Amnon, firstborn son of David. Now, the word gets back to the king that this happens. And David's response, according to Scripture, is that he became very angry and did nothing about it. Absalom is the second-born son of David, and he is the full brother of Tamar who was raped. He makes a decision on that day. If my father will not do the right thing, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to become the man of this house, and I will right this wrong. It takes him two years, but finally he gets a situation together where he's able to kill Amnon. So Amnon is now out of the picture, and Absalom should get the throne. 
Absalom, who has lost all respect for his father by this point, right? And he decides that he is going to rebel against his father and try to take the kingdom from David. And in order to show his prominence over David, you know what he does? He takes David's wives, yes, I said wives, he takes David's wives and sleeps with them in public to humiliate his father. Well, David's men get upset about this. Absalom, who has long flowing hair, which is why I've never liked him. He has long flowing hair. And as he's riding through the woods, his hair literally gets caught in the tree and he is hanging by his hair from the tree and the, and the um, soldiers who support David come along and they put Absalom to death. So, two down. There's one left. His name is Adonijah. And Adonijah decides he likes not his sister, but one of his father's wives. And he hatches a plan to marry one of David's wives and steal her away from him. And as a result, um, he, uh, Solomon gets word of this, and he and his mother, Bathsheba, put a plan together to kill Adonijah. And now Adonijah is dead, and now Solomon is first in line for the throne. Does this sound like a TV show? Does this sound like a soap opera? This is an absolute mess. So Solomon now is going to be in line for the throne. And as we know, Solomon comes to the place of power and he becomes the king over the whole thing. And you're gonna keep your finger in Proverbs 7, but I want you to turn over to the book of 1 Kings, which will be to your left, and find 1 Kings chapter 11. Because it's there in 1 Kings 11 that we get sort of the summary of Solomon's life and the end of his rulership. And here's what it says. It's, I'll call it Solomon's epitaph. Here's what it says. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall, you, uh, shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these women in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. That's Solomon's epitaph. Undoubtedly, by the time he is writing Proverbs chapter 7, he is deep in the middle of that mess. And he realizes that for generations there has been this sin in his family where everybody is just flushing their lives down the toilet to go after temporal pleasures specifically related to sexual lust. And he sits down 
to write to his son. And he's got to be thinking, this has got to stop. This is ruining so many lives. This has got to stop. And so we pick it up there in verse 5. These words, keep them, hold them like the apple of your eye. Why? That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. And I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking in sense. Now he's going to tell us a story. And this is kind of cool. This might even be why I started here in chapter 7 in this series. Because there's almost no stories in Proverbs. They're just pithy saying after pithy saying. And there doesn't seem to be any order to the whole thing. But I like stories. And he begins to tell us this story. And, and uh, all of our, uh, most Bible scholars assume this is a parable or a fictional story, the kind of story that Jesus would tell to illustrate points often. And he says, yeah, I looked out the window, and what did I see there? Not an evil person, not a, a thief or a robber, a murderer, some kind of insurrectionist, just a, a young man, a youth, who lacks wisdom. There he is among the naive. And so Solomon, in his writing here, offers wisdom to young people who lack it by warning people to look out for dangerous situations. Now, the story unfolds in the next, I don't know, 13, 14 verses. Let me read it to you real quick, and then we'll come back. Passing through the street near her corner... He takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She seizes him and kisses him. And with brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you to seek your presence earnestly. I have found you. And I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag full of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Now, there's going to be a couple points in this message where I'm going to just stop and make a comment that needs to be made to make sure that we keep our hearts focused on the scripture and don't get offended by the way in which he presents it to us. So let me just begin by doing this. There's nothing in this passage that is blaming the woman for the man's sin. So let me be as clear as I can possibly be about that. There is no question that this man knows exactly what he's doing. 
he specifically makes a decision to go to a certain part of town where certain things are available and he knows it. And he doesn't go in the daytime. When does he go? Under cover of darkness in the nighttime. And he's just there taking a stroll as if he's got nothing else to think about when suddenly this terrible woman emerges and grabs him and drags him. No, that's not what happens. He goes there fully aware of what's happening. And I say this because there's been way too much history, uh, especially, frankly, among religious folks, of blaming women for men's sexual sin. And I want to be as clear as I could possibly be, that is not what this passage is about. She is described not in nice words, right? She's dressed like a prostitute. She's cunning of heart. She has a scheme. She's not innocent in all of this. But what I want to say is that her sin is her sin. His sin is his sin. Okay? So don't get, don't get already caught up and, and go, hey, wait a second. Why are we blaming the woman for this? I'm not blaming her for this at all. He's heading to her house. He knows what he's looking for. And she is up to no good. I mean, he doesn't rape her. This is fully consensual. But that doesn't make it right. And that doesn't make it good. And it certainly doesn't make it wise. But it's that lust for temporal pleasure that can lead us right off a cliff. And we have a choice when it comes to our temptations. We have the power to do what is right and avoid ruin. We can make a decision that has the long term in our interest instead of of the short term interest. We have the power to do that. Now, if sexual sin and lust and temptation is not your particular area of struggle, that's okay because there's great wisdom here for you as well. Because we all face temptation. Amen? 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 Amen. Okay, don't lie to me. Don't pretend. We all face temptation. And so if, if, if sexual lust is not the thing that is, is always knocking at your door, then just I would encourage you to fill in the blank with your own story. Maybe it's about greed for you. Maybe it's about jealousy. Maybe it's about gossip. Maybe it's about something along those lines. The bottom line is there is always temptation for us to take the shortcut instead of living out God's plan for our lives with the long term in mind. Either way, that's the point. God's standard of behavior given to us in Scripture is not given for our demise. It's given for our benefit. And when we ignore God's standards in order to to get a temporary good feeling, we risk losing everything in the process. Now, skip down, verse 22. Suddenly, I love that, suddenly. Yeah, suddenly. He, he, He planned this, he waited till night, he went to the wrong neighborhood, he's like looking around, seeing if he can find somebody like this, and suddenly, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Disaster. Not because he's such a bad guy. It says he's naive. 
It says he lacks sense. It says he's young. He lacks wisdom. He's driven by whatever his hormones are saying to him all the time. Instead of thinking with his mind and his heart and trusting in God's plan for his life. And he falls into a trap. And it destroys him. So how do we avoid this same problem? I'm going to give you a couple of pointers here. First of all, stay away from the edge of the cliff. Right? Stay away from the edge of the cliff. Nobody accidentally fell off a cliff until they walked up to the edge. Stay away from the edge of the cliff. It's the most obvious advice anybody could give, and yet every one of us has experience in our own lives where we're like, well, I could just flirt with that a little. And we lean over, and we think it's all going to be okay, and everything's going to be fine, and we go to the edge of the cliff. Stay away from the edge of the cliff. Let me put it another way. If you want to live a wise life, that avoids moral catastrophe, then you have to avoid the direction, not just the destination. Choose your path wisely. See, even those of us who are serious about living an upright life can find ourselves in a trap. Why? Because we're just arrogant enough to think that we can flirt with sin and not get hurt. I read this week an article about a guy, his, his friend kept snakes, like exotic snakes. And he thought, well, it'd be really cool to hold one of those. He reached in the tank and picked up a cobra. The cobra bit him. Well, they had already had a few drinks. He said to his friend, I'm tough. It's not going to bother me. Let's go have a few more drinks. He dropped dead at the bar. What are you doing picking up a snake? What kind of idiot are you, Doug? How many times have I gone ahead and flirted with something knowing that if I step over the line, this could be bad, but as long as I stay on this side of the line, it'll probably be fine. Get away from the line. It's just simple Wise advice. Listen, if you're an alcoholic, don't hang out at the bar with your friends. If you're on a diet, don't meet up at the bakery to connect with people. I got a lot more from that than the alcohol. Everybody, the alcoholic, oh, yeah, okay, but the bakery, we all relate to that. So here we have an unwise man. He's put himself in a dangerous situation, and guess what happens? Go back to verse 10. Behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. Let's just stop here. I'm going to continue making a point I was making earlier. Your sin is your fault. Nobody else's. Your sin is your fault. Nobody else's. There's none of this devil made me do it stuff. The scripture says it's not true. Devil doesn't have the power to make you do anything. 
There's none of this, I did it because she wanted, I did it because he said. No, every one of us has choices. Your sin is your fault, nobody else's. And when it comes to this issue of lust, too many Christians, men in particular, have been guilty of rationalizing their lust and blaming women for the way they dress or the way they flirt or they shouldn't have been hanging out at this bar in the first place and all of that kind of stuff. And there is a theological term for that. It is called baloney. <laughs> first baloney one one. His sin is not her fault. We all sin when we make the choice to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a great verse for you to have highlighted in your Bible. It says basically this. It says, uh, every, everyone gets the same temptations, but God is faithful who always gives a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's an answer when I am tempted. The answer is no. Jesus set that example for us when he was tempted in the wilderness. So this particular woman, she's dressed like a prostitute. She has cunning intentions, it says. She's trying to get the attention of a man. That much is quite obvious. But his sin is not her fault we all sin when we make the choice to sin. I hope I've made that as clear as I possibly can because I don't want you to write me emails about the point I'm about to make. That being said, sometimes the way a woman dresses makes it far more difficult for a man to keep his eyes where they ought to be and his thoughts where they ought to be. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we owe this to each other. We've got to take care of each other. We've got to watch out for each other. It doesn't mean it's her fault when he sins, but she missed her chance to help him avoid this temptation. In the case of our story, this woman was intentional about her dress. She was trying to get a certain response from a man. And you may be thinking, especially you, you young ladies, you may be thinking, listen, I should be allowed to dress however I want and not have to worry about some guy lusting over me. To which I say, I agree, in a perfect world, that would be great. But in this world, it's naive. And so ladies, on behalf of myself and my brothers in Christ, let me just ask you to have our backs on this one. Our lust is our fault, not yours. And nothing that you wear or don't wear excuses a man for treating you like an object. But when you dress, keep in mind that you have brothers out there who are already struggling with this level of temptation and we could really use your help. And this ends our public service announcement. <laughs> Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. The story goes right where you'd expect it to go. Verse 14. Uh, it was, uh, she says, I was due to offer peace offerings. I won't get into explaining that. It's a, there's a reason behind that. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows, he says, or she says. She has seized him, verse 13, kissed him. And with a brazen face, she gives him her pitch. And basically the pitch is this. 
hey, baby, I'm easy. I'm available. In fact, I've made all the preparations. There's not going to be any cost to this. There's not going to be any danger in this. Yeah, there's a ring on my finger, but he's gone, and he's not going to be back for a long time. This is going to be great. And then skip down to verse 18, and look what she says. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Do you see that word? Love. What does love have to do with any of this? Absolutely nothing. But it is so easy to get love confused with lust. You don't have to say amen. I can see your faces. <laughs> it is so easy to get love and lust confused. But let's see how the Bible defines love. You guys know this, right? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Go real quick with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to pick it up in verse 4. You've heard this, the famous love chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now compare that to lust. Lust is selfish. Lust is always seeking its own interests. Love is impatient. Love is unkind. It is jealous. It is arrogant. It rejoices in unrighteousness. It doesn't take a genius to see the difference between lust and love. But if you lack wisdom, you will easily settle for lust and call it love. And in the process, you may miss out on the opportunity to actually love and actually be loved. Well, how does our story end for the young man who's lacking in wisdom? He follows her home. He has his lust fulfilled. And what's the result? Verses 22 and 23. It's like he got shot with an arrow. And it led him to disaster. It turns out there's a cost to sin. And the price is higher than anyone wants to pay. It cost him his life. We could write our own ending to this story where the husband comes home and kills him. We could, we could write a, a, a story where there's a disease transmitted, where there's an unwanted pregnancy, where, where there's just a heart filled with guilt and shame and all the stuff that comes with all of this because what is offered with lust is not what's delivered. But one way or another, this is the path that leads to destruction. So, let's make our takeaway very simple. I've said it a thousand times. Every path leads somewhere. When you choose your path, you choose your destination. Where did this all go wrong? You remember the story of the wise and the foolish builder? That, let me just read to you. It's, a, it's a Matthew 7. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24 kind of sums it up. But let me just read it to you real quick. Matthew 7, 24. He's telling this story. And he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And later he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them should be compared to a fool who built his house on the sand. And when the winds and the storms came, great was the fall of that house. Guys, we have to actually take the wisdom of God's word and let it guide our activities. We have to act on God's word. We have to put this stuff into play in our lives. This is foundational. And so I ask you, maybe get past the specific implications. You could see why Solomon, given the legacy of his life and his own struggles, writes about being careful about being too attracted to women you shouldn't be with. But guys, put your own issue in place there and ask yourself, man, why am I so greedy? Why am I so driven for fame? Why am I willing to compromise the truth in order to have people like me? I don't know what your issue is, but I would tell you this. Satan loves to wave shiny things in front of our face. And when he's led us far enough off track with them, he lets us take a bite and we end up with a mouthful of gravel. Where are you building your house? How are you laying the foundation? A wise man builds his house upon the rock. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from these sort of um, taboo discussions. That, That especially, Lord Jesus, You have been tempted in every way that we have been tempted. You know what it is to be a man. You know what it is to be tempted, and yet you're without sin. You're our example, Lord. We don't have to give in to temptation, no matter what the source of that temptation may be, whether it comes to us on a screen in front of us, whether it comes to us at the bank or maybe on a TV show that we're watching, whether it comes to us in whatever way it may come, we don't have to say yes to temptation. By the power of your spirit, we can say yes to you. And so God, pour this into the foundation of our lives. Let us be men and women who walk by faith, who put our trust in you, who believe that your word is always right. And let us walk in your statutes and experience the joy of those blessings. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.